Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. As you know, this podcast is part of the Agora Podcast Network, a network of like-minded, independently managed and cultivated podcasts from all over the world. Now, this month, we would like to uh, promote The Unapologetic Capitalist by my good friend Alison Gerlach. It's a forum that cultivates and encourages the building of significant long-term values of any venture. So if you're an entrepreneur, a business exec, a consultant, or anybody who's interested in the world of business, I recommend you give it a listen. And you can do that by logging on to the Agora Podcast Network, iTunes, Stitcher, or a podcatcher of your choice. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem... That Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome to another Mid-Atlantic and Roundtable Talk mashup. This week I'm joined by Eric Farg and Xander Snyder from the Reconsider podcast to discuss party conventions and do they still matter in the world of rolling news and the constant Trump treats. In a week that has seen the pocketbook version of the Constitution of the United States becoming a bestseller, I asked them which party knows how to party. Hi, Royfield. <laughs> it's so great to be on your show. I'm really excited. I've been listening to Mid-Atlantic for a long time. This is, it's like so cool to actually be here with you. So thanks. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's great to be on. And just for the record, I had a pocket constitution years ago before it was cool. So did I. It's actually still in my backpack. And it has been since college. But you've got... Which for those of you in the UK, it's university. So um, you might have a pocketbook version of the constitution, but have you read it? Most of it. Again and again. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. I'm a big fan. We're nerds, right? So again, for foreign listeners like... Is it like, oh, we're, do Americans just all read the Constitution all the time? But Xander and I are pretty special. <laughs> so, guys, uh, being a Brit, I'm kind of somewhat fascinated by American political party conventions. Because, for a start off, us Brits, we like to do them much more regularly than you. We do them once a year. But they're not as glitzy and as glamorous. And there's definitely no aging rock stars there. So, quite simply, from a Brit to a couple of Yanks... What do party conventions basically say about modern American politics? 
Ooh, that's a good question. It is. I don't know what they say necessarily about modern American politics. I certainly think they say something about sort of the political process here in America, which is, you know, campaigning becomes this big emotional uh, patriotism fest where both parties can try to show off to the rest of the country how much they love America. And obviously there are aspects to this year's RNC and DNC that are, I would say, unique. But I think there's certainly, you know, that aspect of overt patriotism that American politics tends to do, you know, pretty well. On this most important issue, Donald Trump is right. It's time. It's time to end the era of stupid wars and rebuild our country. When when I was a kid, the great debate was about how to defeat the Soviet Union. And we won. Now we are told that the great debate is about who gets to use which bathroom. This is a distraction from our real problems. Who cares? Of course, every American has a unique identity. I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican. But most of all, I am proud to be an American. Here's my, here's my take. Uh, the way I think of it is structural. So where did the conventions come from? And so it's sort of how have they morphed to enter the modern world? So conventions, if you guys listen to podcast episode seven, Delegate Math on Reconsider, uh, we talk a lot about about where they come from so i'm not going to repeat too much but in short they used to be places where in smoke-filled rooms party leaders from different states would get together and they'd actually just on their own pick who their party nominee was going to be which seems kind of really foreign to us now Um, and then over time it morphed to be more and more of a democratic process of nominating the party's candidate for president as well as electing the president and and so the conventions, to some extent, sort of lost their original purpose. Like, you know, you come in and, and they do kind of count how the delegates vote, but it's, it's ceremonial, right? We know, we have known since 1952, every time going in, who it's going to be. Broker conventions are very rare. And when they're not brokered, they're really just a dog and pony show. The value, I think, that conventions have is sort of setting the party's message for that cycle. Um, and... You know, I've talked a lot on the blog and in the podcast and in Wedged about how, you know, the changing media landscape and introduction of like super polling and consultants has changed this a lot. It means that the message is changing actually every few weeks and every few months rather than just every four or 20 years, because what's happening is we're trying to get uh, an emotional connection with a very emotional and, and kind of short attention span audience. Um, and I think the conventions are the sort of ultimate manifestation of that because it's one of the few times you actually have people tuning in specifically saying, I want to see what this presidential candidate stands for. And because it's about emotions more than it is about platform, uh, you see you see that played up on overdrive. You know, you give someone 30 minutes to get people really riled up. Um, and they're going to do some crazy stuff. So uh, that's where I think 
that's why I think conventions kind of look the way they do in the United States right now. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction to make too, Eric, is that they, in their current incarnation, they have become more and more about marketing and emotional displays, whereas back in the day when America was a little less democratic, a little bit more representative, they kind of served a different purpose. Right. I think that's a really interesting distinction. And I suppose looking at British party uh, party conventions or uh, party conferences, as we call them in the UK, they're less on emotion, at least the Labour Party and I think the, the Liberal Democrats are less on emotion, more actually on policy and specifically on the floor, uh, policy can be can be driven through uh, that whole kind of mechanism of of the convention of the conference so I'm, I'm getting my two sides of the Atlantic you know the labels which, which you call them kind of mixed up here they're definitely called party political conferences in the UK as opposed to conventions whereas the Tory party the Conservative party has been much more about uh, emotion the way that you describe it but also about reflecting its idea of uh, nationalism and, uh, and this can be somewhat kind of overt, so you can get in the Tory party conference people waving Union Jacks. And uh, one of the things that was interesting for me looking at this round of party political conventions in, in the US was that the Democrats seem to, for the first time in, in the, that I can remember, been able to say we are also... Americans as well. So you got them shouting USA, USA, which I always thought was very much a right of center political thing in, in the US, you know, and those very overt kind of uh, uh, displays of kind of nationalism, you know. So I thought that that was very interesting that it seemed to me that because uh, Trump is, is seen in some ways to maybe be pushing the uh, Republican Party maybe to the right, depending on what mood you're in, if you're talking about a stance on immigration or maybe even to to the left, if you look at the fact that um, he is definitely interested in, if you can say that he has any kind of thought-out platform, but he's definitely, you know, interested in anti-globalisation, that the Democrats seem to be able to occupy this kind of middle ground, at least emotionally and in terms of figuratively with their... Uh, displays of uh, Americana. Yeah, it's an interesting observation that, you know, Trump, the phenomenon of Trump could potentially be introducing these generally considered to be Republican attributes into the Democratic Party's process and getting pulled that way. And then Sanders, you could say, pulled the Democratic Party to the left. So maybe the Democratic Party is just getting stretched in both directions right now. Who knows? But it's certainly a point that, you know, political commentators have been making, and certainly a lot of Republicans in the U.S., which is, you know, we are seeing activity or we saw activity at the DNC that has, at least in recent decades, been more frequently associated with, you know, Republican patriotic gravitas. Yeah, if I had to guess, so again, I'm a like a big structural guy, you know, you've heard Xander and I talk about realism a bunch and I'll talk about, you know, market economics a bunch and I'll be like, well, what's the, you know, what's like the driving incentive here? Um, you know, if we are, if we're looking at the DNC, I think what's interesting for them is they sniff an opportunity 
here, my impression of their mood is both that they're sort of like giddy and also terrified. Uh, they're terrified because for the past year and a half, everyone, including the Republicans, has been saying, you know, Trump's a maniac and he's he's going to disappear at any point. And by the Republicans, I mean the establishment, um, you know, because obviously he's, he's got a lot of support. And so the scary part is like, why isn't he dead yet um, as a as a politician, not as a human? And so there's a little <laughs> terror there. And maybe someone's asking why he's not dead as a human yet. But he's actually his doctor said he's he's very healthy. He's the most he's the healthiest president that's ever candidate that's ever run for president, you know. Um, but anyway, so with this fear, there is opportunity, right? Mm. The Democrats know that establishment style Republicans, particularly the kind of people that voted for Kasich um, and the kind of people that were excited about Romney, uh, pro business Republicans, guys like that. Because um, the, the, the tents are actually pretty large if you look ideologically. Um, you know, the Republicans are kind of getting more white male, uh, and that's a problem for them demographically. But ideologically, it's still a very big tent with a lot of very different ideas. I think the Democrats this year smell an opportunity, um, and I think it, they think it's their best strategy to beat Trump and, and maybe also take back Congress and Senate by targeting and scooping up uh, those Republican, those pro-businessy type Republicans. So I heard a lot of, uh, I heard, you know, obviously Hillary Clinton is is like fairly kind of centrist, um, and she, you know, her ties to Wall Street mean that she's kind of at least uh, close with business people and has talked to them and understands them. Unlike Sanders, who's kind of like you know uh, throw them all in jail or break up the banks and stuff like that. Um, so she's, I think she's hounding for those people. She just got Meg Whitman famous Republican CEO ran for president. Um, and also I think to some extent you saw that reflected in the DNC convention. Her tack is, Hey, we're the steady hand. We're centrist. And we've got some stuff on the left over here to make sure that the Bernie people don't just totally blow up on us. Um, but I think they may be, and, and Sanders point about feeling stretched, I think is a real one, but I think to a large extent, some of the DNC was about messaging to Republicans who are thinking about, defecting like hey we're like you and we're not so different um and and you're welcome you know come on over so i think that may be part of why we're seeing some of that i think it's interesting you that you say that the democrats um at least the optics were that they're very centrist considering uh the two kind of marked things about the, the democratic convention was that number one uh bernie sanders was very pleased with some of the platform resolutions that he said this is the most progressive uh, set of resolutions uh, that he can remember the the, uh, the DNC actually running through and then also there was that first night which it seemed like potentially the whole thing was going to descend into chaos because of the Bernie or bust thing you know the the fact that you had that left-wing element the, the Bernieites uh, the people that were definitely feeling the burn and were somewhat upset that there was no more burn to feel that uh, it looks like they were trying to disrupt the, the whole thing, but they I can still but, go to the burn ward. They'll get plenty of burn there. <laughs> but Sorry. definitely by the by the end of that week, with speeches from from Obama, where he was absolutely reaching out to traditional Republicans, uh, and and I think that mood definitely turned when you had Michelle Obama's speech, etc. That yes, you know the optics definitely were that we are the centrist party but also again i don't even think for i was going to say from a british perspective uh, forget that with somebody with eyes perspective <laughs> looking at the two conventions 
one of them was absolutely the party of white America and the other is definitely the party of inclusive America and that just cannot be denied if you look looked at those those two conventions you know how how is it that such a thing could be so marked and go um, I'm not going to say it's been unreported but sure if I was the Republican Party if I was Rance Priebus I would be absolutely scared Oh, he's terrified. He's freaking out. Yeah. By I mean, the way, I'd be Piribus, scared if I had that name too. Yeah. For those that don't know, Piribus is the chairman of the RNC. So he kind of runs the party from an organizational perspective. Are the Republicans scared? I mean, they're losing it. They're livid. They're, you know, the establishment Republicans. They're livid right now. Uh, I've been reading a lot of stuff about where, like, there are, like, little leaks of establishment Republicans, particularly the party organizer types just kind of freaking out um, a couple of them have like maybe have like tweeted things that were maybe meant to be direct messages saying like we're just going to get destroyed here and they may be even thinking about trying to convince trump to drop out and get someone else i mean it's been a, it's a it's a bad time for them i would not want to be i would not want to be an establishment republican right now and you know i remember after 2014 or maybe no 2012 because they won in 2014 and they were feeling good in 2012, they said, look, okay, they were very clear, McConnell was clear, Pierpus was clear, that we need to become a bigger tent and we need to reach out to people that aren't uh, whites and men more. And there were a lot of candidates this year that were that were part, you know, on that message in the nomination process. And then they got Trump and it was like, oh, crap, you know, we're in trouble now. Yeah, and you know we we talk about this a little bit on on uh, our reconsider episode on on demagogues, which is you know you can, can you approach the phenomenon of certain types of leaders less from the perspective of what do they represent and more from the perspective of are they evidence are they a symptom of some sort of greater thing going on, and I kind of want to turn this back on you a little bit, Roy Field, given everything that's gone on in the UK with Brexit, mm. you know, can Trump be you know, representative, a symptom of maybe a larger trend that's going on in the West right now, which is just, you know, rejection of the establishment. And, you know, you mentioned a moment ago how, you know, exclusive the RNC seemed compared to the DMC, which really, I thought they did a very effective job at portraying this message of unity. But, you know, how does that relate to what just happened in, in the UK? And what is what does the American campaign right now look like to an outsider? He gets stuff done. Donald Trump is a proven leader. Innovator, entrepreneur. When Donald Trump is in charge, all that counts is ability, effort, and excellence. He has created jobs for thousands and is one of the greatest visionaries of our time. Well, I, I've just come back from lunch uh, with a, a group of your... Uh, compatriots and I, I start all conversations on Brexit like this up until that vote us Brits and the rest of the world could look at American politics and just say these guys are crazy look, look at them we're so much superior to them we are sober we are sensible we know how to do democracy specifically within the UK we have the oldest uh, parliament in continuous running parliament in the world it's the mother of parliaments etc etc we do things in a considered way then we just blew ourselves up so trust me 
Um, there is no smugness anymore. If you'd have, if you'd have, if we'd have had this conversation two months ago, six weeks ago, I'd have been incredibly smug. I can't be smug anymore. Yes, there is a trend, and I think that Donald Trump. We can blame a lot of things on him, but whether he is a demagogue or not, or just a complete and utter political opportunist, there's a reason why Donald Trump has found traction in this. Mm election cycle in the US and it comes some 40 odd years after relative wage inequality relative economic stagnation if you look at the economic boom that was America post the second world war that kind of stopped in the early to mid 70s again if you look at the, the there's a reason why the United States and the United Kingdom in the early 1980s both had uh, relatively right-wing politicians, both that broke with the political consensus, that post-war consensus was broken, both at the same time, uh, so Thatcher and Reagan, but all throughout the Western world. It doesn't really matter whether whether governing parties are on the left or on the right, we have people who are unhappy with the political status quo, whether it's in Britain whether it's in Spain, whether it's in Greece, that if you look at it, every decade, if you take out maybe the uh, Depression era, but every decade there was some level of optimism. You know, things are going to get better, uh, and the children of parents always did economically better. That has come to a grinding halt, and it's... And, and so so then you have people like Trump who are saying things which the left can agree with in part, the right can agree with in part, and, and he feels incredibly fresh because he doesn't come out with slick spin, trite answers, and people say, he sounds like me, he thinks like me. Now, the very fact that this man is... Uh, maybe not actually a billionaire like he likes to profess, but actually maybe just a mere millionaire and has never had to struggle a day in his life for anything, um, belies the fact that, um, you know, he is supposedly the spokesman for blue-collar workers, you know, for frustrated uh, white men. But we have we have Trump in the United States. We had Farage in the United Kingdom, who was very, very, very much Trump light, who led the Brexit movement. You know, he was somebody who was a successful businessman. Um, I don't think he's a, a millionaire, uh, but a successful businessman, very much populist, very much right wing, but had an appeal to people who traditionally left wing to blue collar workers who was always spotted in the pub with, with a pint of beer. So he had the common touch and kind of said what he thought, though he was much more articulate than Donald Trump. Don't get me wrong. You know, I'm not saying they're two peas in a pod. But in terms of what they uh, stand for, they, they, they stand for very kind of similar things in terms of rejecting globalisation, saying that the economic model for the working man is broken, rejecting big banks and and, corp- and a kind of corporatization uh, and saying that um, decisions need to be made closer uh, and small uh, decisions need to be made uh, closer to you the person 
So in Britain, that meant a rejection of of the EU, and uh, and, and and in this way, Trump's politics chime with. Uh, the last 40 years of Republican politics, which is to say that, you know, Washington is bad, 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 and we need we need smaller government, you know. So in, in those two, in, in those ways, these two kind of characters are kind of synonymous. Um, though, where the differences are somewhat stark is that I know in American politics, since the passing of the founding fathers, there's definitely been a strand of anti-intellectualism that you don't like people with big brains and to a degree we have a little bit of that in in the in the UK but we are much more comfortable I'm not saying we are comfortable but we are much more comfortable with a political class again don't, don't get me wrong I'm not saying we are totally comfortable but we are more comfortable and why that is important is that You couldn't have somebody like Donald Trump coming to national prominence within the UK, somebody who can't really string sentences together, that he would be lampooned. Um, Whereas in the United States, it's because he can't string sentences together that people say he's he's kind of one of us. Uh, You know, at the moment, we still kind of do believe that somebody intellectually needs to be prepared for high office in the way that I think most Americans do do believe that. But because you are so frustrated with your gridlock in Washington, that somebody who is on the national platform, on the national stage, who is not sounding like a politician, you're just saying, well, you know what? It can't be any worse than than what we have at the moment. Yes, I think I was I was going to say, Eric, I think Royfield makes a lot of good points about some larger trends that are going on. If we're going to refocus a little bit on some of the conventions, how do you how do you think these played into both how, you know, the conventions were managed and how the reactions to them have played out afterwards? Well, for me, it was absolutely stark um, that the Republican convention was completely about fear. Completely about fear. Decades of progress made in bringing down crime are now being reversed. I know that corruption has reached a level like never, ever before in our country. Poverty and violence at home, war and destruction abroad, 180,000 illegal immigrants with criminal records ordered deported from our country, are tonight roaming free to threaten peaceful citizens. But then in terms of just the theatre of it, I didn't know who all these people were. And I was absolutely shocked how much the Trump family and the Trump corporation had seemed to have taken over the Republican Party. That's things that really start for me. So, OK, so this guy's running to be president Here's his wife. Okay, that's pretty standard in US politics. Not at all standard in in UK that you have that that person's spouse giving a speech. I'm not saying it's not ever happened, but it is not at all standard. It absolutely would be the exception. But okay, let's put that to one side. I then transpose that to um, to the Democratic Convention. And I didn't get an overwhelming sense of Hillary being 
an omnipotent presence in the way that you did with the Republican uh, convention. It was it was it was lighter in tone. It was more celebratory. It was more fun. They even had better celebrities. Much better celebrities. That was pretty good, Sarah. Who, who were the celebrities even at the at the, at the RNC? So it was. Well, just, oh, go! I what just wanted to, I want to I want to drop a fact thing in it, and I think that one of the yeah one of the you know why why did you get so much so many small names and so many Trump people at the convention? Actually, my understanding is it's not what he wanted because um, he's he's. I mean, as crazy as it sounds, I think that Trump is actually pretty politically savvy. Um, he has his moments. I think he's like not as self-controlled as you know as as he needs to be. But from Which a strategic perspective, part part of his charm, as, as you know, if you are if you're fed up with a political system, somebody comes along who can hold up a middle finger to it is going to hold a certain amount of um you know charm for you and you will go along with them after they make mistake after mistake because you will turn around and you'll say it's the political class who's saying that they've made a mistake it's the same old people that have led us to yeah. where we are so you know good on you right. for making so, your mistakes yeah exactly so the the reason he ended up with so much of his family and small celebrities was that they tried to get bigger names and people just didn't want to go. Um, cause the people that tend to be, you know, part of it is that I think Trump is so dangerous to be associated with in, in many circles, um, except for specifically the thing that he's doing, uh, that nobody wanted to be there. And so, you know, they, they had actually invited a whole lot of other people and it ended up coming down literally to a lot of his family just cause they couldn't get anyone else. Um, the other thing that I that I got out of the GOP convention that was a little bit different, uh, but I think that the message for him about caring for Americans is less from an emotional side. <clears throat> and I think one of the things Republicans resonate with is, you know, I don't actually, I don't care if you do things that feel good. And, you know, I don't care if you say that you care. I want to see results. And I think his big thing is that, Hey, unlike the political class, I've built tens of thousands of jobs and I haven't, I don't know exactly how many jobs, how many people he employs. So I don't know Mm. if that's a fact check issue, but like, but for him, it's like, Hey, I get results. Yeah. So I want to refocus a little bit on the topic of the conventions, which is what I think we started off with the intentions of talking, uh, talking about and sort of how it's been perceived afterwards. And something that's interesting to me, one of my pet issues, really, and Dan Carlin talks about this sometimes, and it sometimes gets some mainstream media attention, is really how different the skill set is to campaign effectively and to administrate or administer effectively, to govern effectively, right? And there's something, I think, perhaps a little bit more unique about the way that the American electoral process is set up that encourages, you know, with one, two, sometimes even longer, two-year, 
you know, campaigns really from when they get going on the onset that encourages a certain type of skill set to be, you know, promoted and brought to the front of American politics. But what we saw at the DNC that I think a lot of people have considered to be very effective, this, you know, on point message of unity and bringing in patriotism, um, it's good and there is great oratory. Bill Clinton did a good job. Michelle Obama did a great job in giving speeches. And I think what's easy to forget is that speeches and the art of oratory are focused specifically to cultivate certain types of emotions that get big groups of people to do certain things. And that it could be really a unique set of skills that could allow someone to govern effectively compared to giving good speeches. And it, to me, that's just easy to forget, right? And it's, it's too bad because I think we don't have a great way of vetting what the actual skill set would be to allow uh, or to check whether or not a prospective leader, a prospective politician can govern effectively once they get into office. But, but I thought that was one of the reasons why your campaign process was so long. That actually you could vet somebody by how they campaigned, how many times they're going to trip themselves up, by how many different constituencies of America they could actually take on board, of which the convention is a coronation. But then you need those vet people from those various constituencies then to endorse you whether it's through searing oratory or whether it's through prose but then they endorse you and, and endorse you kind of clearly yeah i think that's one of the dilemmas of democracy ultimately is that that's the intent right the intent is that you know and i'm sure it's sort of what was kind of originally going through everyone's head when they sat in philadelphia um not this time around. I mean, back in the 1700s. <laughs> um, and, you know, because they were thinking like, oh, it'll be good. You know, people people will be, they're good at knowing their own self-interest and they're good at, um, you know, kind of asking the right questions to of a candidate. And so certainly that was the intent of, of, I think, of how campaigning was supposed to work. But I think the, well, and also it was originally designed, right, that they wouldn't be campaigning until after the convention uh, because you wouldn't even know who it was and they wouldn't be doing it publicly. They'd be doing it privately, you know, with, with the party bosses. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I think that's a dilemma. It's like you have that intent, but there is this sense that, you know, and, and like Carlin said and like Xander said, there's this sense that the stuff that you do to best cultivate people's emotions to get them excited to vote is not necessarily the same stuff. You know, it's not the same skill set. Um, that you need once you're done campaigning, you get into office, and you know I think Zan- yeah, I, I think Xander brings up a great point. Just slightly to, to to come back at what you just said there, that this is um, the way that kind of democracy is. Um, this is the way that American democracy works, um, and I think you Americans, and I've got big love for America and your political system, and I think uh, m- my works kind of prove that. But the one thing that that um, America does is to to think that democracy is American democracy, and and there are many other kind of kind of paths mm. to it. Um, and that's just a, a, a small point. Um, and specifically with within the UK and how our political model works is that because your average citizen or sorry subject doesn't actually vote for <laughs> the person who is yeah you know we, we are subjects not citizens right yeah um because we don't actually vote for the head of the executive 
the way that you guys do. So you vote for the head of the executive and the head of the uh, head of state. Um, politicians earn their stripes by holding portfolio offices. So it's I'm sure mm. it could happen, but it's highly unlikely for somebody who has never held military ministerial office or at least shadow ministerial office so that is in opposition it's one of the key differences between our political system and yours is yeah. that when a party's in opposition they still have people who hold the shadow portfolio so they're not executing the orders of you know the, the minister of defense but they look over what that person actually does and kind of holds them to account so it's un likely that in our political system that somebody can go from zero to hero you could have somebody who's never held any form of political office or any responsible office and then to become the head of the executive become the prime minister you know i'm sure it could happen but it would have to be such a wild set of circumstances for that actually to be the case yeah, that's a great point. And I was thinking in my mind, I was like, "Ooh, is that is this a new thing?" Because you know, obviously, if you look at past candidates, like um, you know, obviously, like Romney and Obama and McCain and Clinton and Bush, you know, they've well, Obama was a little bit less experienced, but you know, they had all at least held office, and some of them were two-term governors and a bunch of other stuff. And um, but then if you look back at like Woodrow Wilson, for example, he had you know he was a professor, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, as much as what's interesting is he was obviously from the very, from a very intellectual attack, but he was also, he also had that outsider edge Mm. to him. Um, yeah, I think structurally you're certainly right. And, you know, why are we seeing the Republicans now? I mean, I think you, you nailed it when you said that the Republicans spent a long time saying that DC is broken and DC is the problem, not just the Democrats, but everyone there. And I think this, you know, I think this year Republicans said, Okay, well, not going to vote for any of you guys, right? Um, you know, we're going to vote for someone who's not part of this corrupt, terrible, totally broken system. You know, and I also liked one of the things you said earlier that there seems to be, there's an outsider anti-establishment edge, um, you know, a little bit, like you said, in the UK and a lot in the US. And it's on the, you know, it's a little bit on the left as well. And mm. Bernie was obviously very experienced, Um you know, he's been in Senate for a very long time, but he was also very much like the party is broken. The system is broken. You know, it's both D.C. and um, corporations and the economy. You know, it's all busted and we have to redo it all. And and that, I think, is one of the, you know, that sense. And, and it could be entirely justified. Right. Um, I don't want to tell someone whether it is or it isn't. But uh, if it's broken, obviously, that's bad. And if it's not broken and people think it's broken, that's obviously bad too because it means there's this sort of breakdown in um breakdown in trust of the you know the basic institutions that make up the country mm-hmm. and what does that mean because like uh and maybe i'm going a little off topic here but one of the things i'm thinking about after both of the conventions is that um so much of them are based on fear and hate of the other party mm. um you know the democrats are a little less about you know terrorism and such but you know they're saying that Basically, if Donald Trump gets elected, the sky's going to fall. And the Republicans are saying if Hillary gets elected, the sky's going to fall. And so you're going to have, I think, more than, you know, I think, and we kind of say this all the time in the United States. Um, it's a big thing for us. And, but I think 
people believe, and there's substantial evidence for this, uh, the unfavorability of both candidates is very, very, is like historically high. And one of the things I'm worried about is after the election, you're basically going to have half the country that goes, oh God, we're all doomed. And like the worst person in the history of America, a monster is in the presidency. Um, and, you know, regardless of who you support, I think that's a, that is something that I fear is likely that that sense from half the country that we're totally doomed is something that I think is like likely to happen come November and January. But let me tell you, whatever our disagreements may be, I've come here to say we must put them aside for the good of our country. And we must unite around the candidate who can defeat a dangerous demagogue. I think it's one of the interesting things for me, being a student of American politics, is how historically um, American the, the broad span of American political thought has actually been, from a European perspective, very narrow. What has been as what is seen as being acceptable in American political discourse for the last hundred years uh, has not gone as far left as as Europe and has not gone as mm. far right. And that has been arguably a very good thing because, you, you know, you haven't had major brushes with communi- communism, but then you haven't had brushes with fasci- fascism. Well, you've had minor yeah. brushes, but, you know, so... And what is absolutely marked, though, now is that though you could arguably say that American political discourse is becoming broader because you can have somebody... Uh, like Bernie Sanders, who can say, I am a democratic socialist. And I know lo- lots of Americans just hear socialist, don't even really hear the difference. You know, if you're a democratic socialist, you're, you're not a socialist socialist. Those are two, two different things, you know, but they're, right. on, but they're on the same political uh, spectrum. Tough, tough for branding, though. Yeah, well, exactly. But if you can have somebody in America, you know, almost getting his party's nomination, saying I'm a democratic socialist. It tells you that the, the breadth of American political discourse is becoming wider. And as it's becoming wider, though it's still narrower than it is, let's say, within the UK or within Europe, the amount of personal attacks have been amped up to a degree that I don't, I don't think we see in the UK. It could be because I'm born and brought up within the culture that I can't see it when it does happen. But but I don't think it does. Yes, people on the right and the left of UK political discourse do say that the others are going to lead us all off the cliff. But there isn't the amount of personal vitriol. I cannot mm-hmm. think of one British politician who has the amount of personal vitriol thrown at them the way that Hillary Clinton has. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying I can't think of one. Right. You know, we don't have the same amount of uh, political invective and vitriol. We just don't. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying this is interesting that we can have wider political opinions but it doesn't quite descend in the way that it has done. So people, so we have at the moment we have Jeremy Corbyn, who is the leader of the Labour Party, and there is massive rancor within the Labour Party, uh, and and many of the right wing press are anti Corbyn, but no one is saying he needs to be in prison. 
you know, no, you know, you wouldn't at the Tory party convention, people wouldn't be saying lock him up or throw him out the country, you know, and this for me, something which is very stark and in lots of ways, not the America that I've encountered because the America that I've encountered is generally people being incredibly courteous, being very open to, to strangers, you know, to people. Whereas it seems to be within this one sphere of American life of discourse, um, now, the gloves have come off, and it's like I don't know, it's like the eighteen nineties again with with the yellow press. You know, just anything kind of goes. You know, and uh, and it, and it feels feels very ugly. As a former federal prosecutor, I welcome the opportunity to hold Hillary Rodham Clinton accountable for her performance and her character. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In some of the research I've done, one of the things I've definitely seen growing is a sense, you know, from polling is a sense from Americans that we, we have this, it's getting, they don't like it, or we don't like it, um, and it's getting worse. And so, like, you know, most of our American listeners will probably be saying, like, yeah, this is, you know, this is really scary. Um, and what's what I don't know is, is it the same people that are saying, you know, lock her up or... Um, you know, I remember like Nancy Pelosi said that uh, if in 2014 the Republicans are reelected to Senate, it will be a risk to civilization as we know it. So there is there is this like growing vitriol. I think Americans have a sense of it. We don't like it. It could be the same people that are spewing the vitriol that also hate the vitriol. Um, and how much do we how much is it that we like feel trapped in this cycle that we can't get out of where we are, you know, just so genuinely afraid of one person. Cause like if, you know, if, uh, 
Hitler was running for the presidency after his, you know, after having been Hitler, um, you know, I think a lot of people would be like, well, maybe like we should throw him in jail and we're actually really worried. And if 50% of the country was voting for him, it'd be like, ah, right, we'd be really scared. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, and that's where you're saying like it might be, it, you know, maybe it's justified that like maybe both of these people are so terrible that the like the feeling the emotions are somewhat justified um but we certainly we've been growing in it for a while we don't like it and i think there's a there's a perception problem and this is of course a common human bias that when it's us and someone we know that's doing something there's always a good explanation for it and when Mm -hmm. it's someone else and someone we don't know it's because they're a bad person um so we may just be we may be just caught in this endless cycle where we think we're good people we think the other party are all monsters and evil. Um, and to your point, Royfield, I mean, like I've been, I've traveled a lot for work and, you know, so I've been to the South and I've been to the Northwest and the North, you know, like kind of all over the place. And like, you know, maybe you think that Democrats or Republicans are just these like kind of monsters who like love, you know, murdering babies or, you know, <laughs> waging wars on women in their like war room of women war. Um, and like you get to most people of whatever political party, you're like, you're like really nice and like you care and you like care about your community and your family and you care about the country and you seem like a great person. How can we possibly disagree so much? And like, you know, how can you possibly be at this party that does such and such and says such and such? Um, and I think that, you know, like, can we heal this kind of partisan divide that we're seeing out of the conventions and, you know, everything leading up to it? Can we heal it by like talking to each other more? I don't know. I don't think we travel enough to be able to do that and like we don't get in contact enough to do that so i don't know how to get out of it that's what you know you know and again like i try to not tell people what to think but i think the evidence is there that americans are growing and feeling this way and they want it to end and i think we don't know how to get out Mm. um and i think that's kind of where we're stuck right now well to be fair to um americans as i think we all agreed at, at the start of this these same trends are being noticed all throughout at least the western world you know that there is um some kind of post uh it, it's post post the second world war now We're, n- none of us are really living in in that shadow uh emotionally uh, uh, uh kind of economically we kind of post post you know the the berlin wall has come down and political discourse has got more rancorous in the united kingdom definitely since the 19 uh definitely since the 1980s though i wouldn't again i'd say there isn't the same amount of personal vitriol but it's still heading in 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 you know in the direction of impolite discourse um i can't speak for french politics i think that is more more rancorous but that's just a guess guess on my part so this isn't just uh, an american disease so to speak That is what Barack and I think about every day as we try to guide and protect our girls through the challenges of this unusual life in the spotlight. How we urge them to ignore those who question their father's citizenship or faith. How we insist that the hateful language they hear from public figures on TV does not represent the true spirit of this country. (laughs) How we explain that when someone is cruel or acts like a bully, you don't stoop to their level. No, our motto is 
when they go low, we go high. <laughs> with, with every word we utter. Um, but, you know, you look at somewhere like Canada, and there is nowhere near the amount of political vitriol in Canadian politics as there is in, in, in US. You know, like, like nowhere near. Um, it was interesting. I don't know if you remember seeing Justin Trudeau in, in Parliament where he um, he accidentally pushed, he was trying to get to another, uh, an opposition member and accidentally pushed um, a female member of the opposition side and she didn't even she didn't even fall down but she said that you know she'd uh, she, she'd been hurt slightly but you see it in real time and you, and you you really say to yourself really were you but he did you know accidentally hit her he didn't mean to and um his apology the next day was absolutely so full you know unequivocal I'm so sorry etc etc and some people said he, he went over the top considering um, actually what he did and I right. and I contrast that with um, the tone deafness of Donald Trump who I in part actually agree with you that he isn't a total blowhard and he's politically more savvy than we give him credit because he's been able to triangulate his position in the firmament of American politics in the last 18 months extremely well. And I'm not just talking about, you know, him being good on Twitter. You know, he's been able to say, well, wait a minute, if there's 16 people running in this nomination process, um, I can be pretty outrageous and and have a distinct message and I can get a, a, a minority of the votes and win this thing. So that was very good political acumen just be able to do that if he's in a race of three or four as as normal he wouldn't have won you know he wouldn't have won but also he could he, he's tapped into um a mood but when it comes on to this view of uh impolite language and rancor the fact that he doesn't understand that a uh, a family who have lost a son in defense of the country that what you don't do even if they politically disagree with you even if they say that they uh personally mark you out as somebody who they think is wrong for america what you don't do is hit down at a gold star family that i think that is very much a symptom of somebody who believes that the the bounds of language and civility have actually kind of been lost and it doesn't really matter and i think it's that which has really kind of sh shown a lot of moderate republicans how far um and how dangerous uh, the language used uh before the convention and during the convention and after the convention actually is because you know um, for the for the most parts most Americans actually agree on most things, but they forget. Yeah, that. it's crazy. <laughs> we do. Yeah. We're like a very agreeable, well, agreeing, not agreeable, but we're a very agreeing country, especially compared to many everywhere, <laughs> especially yeah. compared to almost, I was going to say the West, but also like a lot of other places. We are America, second to none, and we own the finish line. Don't forget it. God bless you all.
And may God protect our troops. Come on. We're America. Um, as somebody who, you know, I have a great, great, great ad- admiration uh, for for America. I, I really, really do in so so many ways. But I just look at those those two conventions. And if you wanted to sell America abroad, you, I think we all know which convention you would actually sell to the world. The America that Americans tell themselves that they are mm. wasn't the first convention it wasn't the america where anyone can you know whether it's true or not but the but the america but the national myth that you tell yourselves that anybody can can strive to high office anybody can build a business you can look after your family you are a shining light on the top of the hill etc etc all those american stories myths ethoses whatever you want to call them that you tell yourselves that wasn't the first out of the two conventions at all. You know, if you're if you're selling brand America, you want to trot out what the Democrats did. Mm. So uh, my question to you, Eric, is: um, Does American democracy need to be refreshed? And are the best days of uh, America still yet to be had? It's a good question. <sighs> I tend to, I like, I read a lot of, uh, I read a lot of theory, political theory. Mm-hmm. And so I, I try to think about it that way, which is why I'm just so much less, in, you know, inspired. But the two sources I have on that question disagree vehemently. Um, one of them is Machiavelli. And mm-hmm. uh, we talk a lot about him in, in episode 13. But one of the things he talks about is in The Prince, um, and he he alludes to it in Discourses on Livy as well, is that ultimately governments will go through cycles. um, And he thinks it's actually due to sort of the virtue of the populace. So what happens is like you have a king and the king like unites the country or they drive off an invader or something like that. And then like you have a country um, and they form and they have this, you know, the king and the, you know, the people supporting uh, the government there have this like strong sense of duty and virtue uh, towards the and and like loyalty towards the system, um, and they support it. And it can be you know you can have some terrible kings, but it, but it kind of works for a while. And then what happens is uh, the king's like sons, 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 son, um, kind of forgets why they're king uh, and what the purpose was and what their duty is because they're you know surrounded by by sycophants and they get you know they live the good life and um and what happens is they become self-serving and uh and then the powerful people the aristocrats throw them out and the aristocrats are like yeah we finally liberate ourselves and they have a strong sense of duty and that and virtue and then over time they grow go grow corrupt uh and then the people overthrow them and they say yeah you know we're finally liberated and we can make our own decisions and the people start out virtuous and then they grow kind of uh, self-serving and they kind of forget why they forget that democracy is not just a fight for your own, like, you know, for, to get what you can out of it. Um, but that it was, you know, sort of originally designed to be a group of people making good group decisions for everyone. Um, and then it breaks down and Machiavelli actually predicts that what happens is people kind of get so fed up with democracy that they're fine with handing something over to us, 
to a white knight sort of figure that can come in and save them, um, you know, sort of from the other party, but to some extent from themselves. And I think there's a, I think I'm seeing a little bit more of that sense of uh, idolatry of a presidential candidate. Um, you know, in particular that, like you said earlier, like we have this checks and balances system and they're not supposed to be all powerful and they're not even that supposed to be that big a deal compared to Congress and Senate mm. and stuff. Um, but that idolatry and that like kind of willingness to say like, yeah, I want you to totally shake up and tear down the system um, and replace it under your, under like what you believe. So maybe a sign that we're heading that way. So that could be a sign that we're, we're due for a, a major refresh and we don't have a great way of doing refreshes. Uh, you know, we've got the, um, the amendment system, but we don't use it much and it requires a lot of consensus, which it's kind of toxic to uh, politically to agree with the other party right now. So we may have to go. I think that if Machiavelli's right, we have some pain to go through before we finally go, oh, what have we done to ourselves? We have to fix it. Um, so things may get worse before they get better. And that may be where the winter analogy comes in because we may be going through a winter before spring comes. The other way to look at it is George Freeman uh, who's contemporary, um, big structuralist guy, big on geopolitics uh, and like things being driven by kind of fundamental, um, yeah, fundamental structuralist stuff. And he thinks that America in the 21st century is actually going to be kind of even more prosperous than in the 20th uh, due to a lot of stuff. Uh, he thinks that like China and Russia are going to kind of break down at some point due in part to demographics and that uh, the EU is, he's like never been big on the EU and he thinks it's going to stagnate the EU. And because um, he's like, well, here are the structuralist reasons going on behind that. You know, read his stuff if you want to understand more. But he thinks that the United States is actually going to reemerge as fairly powerful. Um, and he thinks that's going to give the United States sort of a sense of purpose again. Uh, and that that sense of purpose and actually the the unity of, oh, hey, we're actually great. That, that, you know, some of the stuff you talked about, that sense of, like, we're great, we're a city upon the hill, and we've got to, like, take, you know, and we got to take care of the world. Um, you know, some of the historical stuff that happened in the late 20th century, or the latter half of the 20th century, you know, some of it was kind of dodgy, like Vietnam and Granada, um, but that it also made Americans feel together. Um, and that, mm -hmm. that may be, if that happens structurally, and the United States becomes preponderant again, he thinks that you might the United States may end up just kind of changing its culture back to being a, hey, we're all Americans, we all agree, and we're great, uh, and yeah, we disagree on some stuff, and we'll yell, but uh, we're going to get along. So it could go, I mean, it could probably go eighteen other ways, but which do I think is more likely? I have no idea. Um, Very quickly, yeah, I think um, in terms of the Machiavelli um, kind of approach that there is a natural kind of wax and wane to the fortunes of countries. It's hard not to be a student of uh, Western history and not believe that that is the case. You know, sometimes countries are relatively strong, then sometimes they're the weaker, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and that can be external and also internal. And you could argue, you could make a very strong argument for saying that this is a point whereby America has forgotten those uh, post-Second World War things which bound it together. And that's the reason why political discourse is so 
so rancorous. You, you know, so you, you could make a very strong argument for that and just say, well, there will come a, an event and and some you could have made a very strong argument for saying that the event was nine eleven, um, you know, fifteen, sixteen odd years ago or so, to say that it would become an event which actually helps to unite the country. Nine eleven didn't because of the way it was, it was actually dealt with after the event, but Yes, so the, there is there is that argument, um, but kind of mo- moving on, and I think this is key to whether America uh, will be uh, economically as prosperous in the twenty first century as it was in the twentieth. Is if America can view the world as something which it doesn't need to take uh, specific. Uh, guardianship of militarily and it can do that from a a position of relative security so it doesn't spend what it spends on its military and it spends it on its infrastructure then I I actually do believe the the 21st century could be I'm not going to say the American century but definitely one where America is as prosperous as it can be uh, first in uh, a set of nations of equals, you know, and you again looking at American history, its involvement in world affairs is actually still an aberration. You know, in, in terms of the amount of time that America has been uh, a global player, all throughout the 19th century, America wasn't a global player; uh, it was a, a hemispheric player at best. Uh, the first half of the, the 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 last century, it still wasn't, and it got dragged kicking and screaming into a world war. So, yeah. if we see that this is um, abhorrent in terms of what the founding fathers wanted and absolutely did want America to stay out of everybody else's business, and if it, and if America gets back to being more isolationist and don't get me wrong I'm not arguing for it right now could be massively destabilizing but if it can retreat in an orderly way but still feel safe yes I do believe that the the 21st century could well be incredibly fruitful for the United States cool I still I wish Andrew was still with us because he's actually doing a lot of work on uh, America as a America in the post unipolar age and what Mm -hmm. our strategy needs to be for that but um, something that we'll save for our next episode because, sorry, listeners, Xander had to run uh, because we've just been having such a ball talking. We went <laughs> over our scheduled time. So, Royfield, I have my opinions on this as well, but you actually asked me this question earlier and uh, I want to, I've been thinking about it a lot and I want to bounce it back to you because you've probably been thinking about it too. So, is this the winter of the American democracy or are America's best days still ahead? Hmm. I think that's two different things. Ooh. And again, I guess winter always is the spring, doesn't it? <laughs> well, American democracy isn't America. And one of the ways of which this country is incredibly unique throughout the world is the fact that you've wrapped the two things up together. And as I say to people all the time, I am British, and it's got nothing to do with how we how we govern ourselves. Italians are just Italians. Chinese people are just Chinese. They just happen to be communist at the moment, but 
it doesn't matter. Whereas to be an American right here and now is to believe in a certain way of governing. So you venerate the Constitution. No German can recite bits of the German Constitution because you're just German. So do I think that American democracy... um, How exactly did you phrase that again? So let me get this answer. He said, is this this the winter of American democracy? Oh, right. Yeah, I said, okay. is this the winter of American democracy okay. or are our best days just ahead? And oh, yeah, I did okay. totally conflate those. OK, so yeah. um, in terms of American democracy, uh, I think Thomas Jefferson was right. Every 20 years, it needs to be renewed. And absolutely, we've, we've come to a point whereby um, certain elements, and I would say fundamental elements, but they're still small in the great scheme of things, need to be uh, revisited. The way that you draw your congressional districts, that needs to be looked at. It needs to be non-partisan. It needs to be completely and utterly independent because this is adding to the uh, separation that Americans feel because uh, red states are drawing the congressional boundaries just around red districts and ditto blue states and whatever so that actually less of your congressional seats are actually in play. So hardly any congressmen are actually really ever going to lose their seats. If you have, let's say, a third or a half of seats were potentially actually in play, my God, would you have much more of a political consensus. You would have to notice and understand what the other side is saying. That that. So that's American democracy. So it needs to be renewed. Is, is it is it winter of American democracy? I, d- I wouldn't quite go that far. I don't think the, the, the whole constitution is about to collapse, but it definitely does need to be re- renewed, refreshed, spring cleaned, to use the winter analogy. So maybe this needs a little bit of spring cleaning. Are the best days of America behind it? Um, as a student of history, it'd be hard to say that you could say that the 21st century could could be for America what the 20th century was. But mm. um, I do believe that um, America's still got a lot of life in it yet. And as a person of colour, it cannot be overestimated, un- underestimated, sorry, um, how important a symbol you sent out to the world eight years ago that somebody who is from a visible minority could actually mm. get the top office. Um, that hasn't happened in Britain, Germany, France, uh, oh. any comparable country. So you guys, that. you guys have actually showed the rest of the world that in one aspect, the American dream is alive and kicking. And you should be incredibly proud of that. So are America's best days um, ahead of it? Maybe. Uh, but I've still got a lot of faith in America. Um, Royfield, I think that's a great, it's a great uh, kind of question mark to leave people noodling on. Something that we at Reconsider love to do is send people away with questions as much as answers. Um, so I've had an absolute ball talking with you. Thank you so much for having us on your show. Listen, no, no, thank you for having me on your show. 
Um, I'm just sorry that I went on my typical Roy Field uh, <laughs> 10 minute uh, monologue in the middle and uh, forgot that um, I should concede some of the floor. Uh, but just for my listeners, if people want to catch up with you and your podcast, tell us the name of your podcast again, have and catch up with you on social media, etc. Yeah, so thanks for the opportunity to plug. Xander and I have a show called Reconsider. It's politics, but we don't do the thinking for you. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, Overcast, Google Play. You can find us at reconsidermedia.com and Facebook and Twitter at ReconsiderPod. We'd love to have you come by. Uh, we've got a lot of shows queued up, but a lot of the stuff has come from listeners uh, to saying like, hey, Eric and Xander, like, what's going on with this thing in the world or this thing in the United States right now? Um, and we've loved being able to answer those questions. If you've got anything for us, definitely get in touch. Uh, Roy Field is uh, sort of a savant when it comes to podcasting. He's got a ton of stuff. If you care about global politics, U.S. politics, U.S. history, uh, and uh, even like the history of music, one of his really interesting shows is How Jamaica Conquered the World. Um, sorry, not just music, but culture. Uh, so about how Jamaica has punched way above its weight uh, in terms of cultural influence across the world. Roy Field's a super smart guy, as you can tell. Um, so I encourage you to go check out his stuff and besides at the Agora Podcast Network Royfield where can people find you um, yeah so it's uh, crumbs you, you, you might you're making me blush but if you go to royfield.com <laughs> you can find um, a lot of my podcasts but the things which I'm kind of really fervent on and working on at the moment are Mid-Atlantic which you mentioned uh, and um all my stuff at Agora, and actually a weird and wonderful thing called Dum De Dum, which is very close to my heart, which is where I talk about my love of this British soap opera, radio soap opera called The Archers. <laughs> so if you just want to completely forget the world of politics and history and culture, go listen to Dum De Dum. Uh, you won't understand a word of it, but it's good fun. And on Twitter, <laughs> why won't I, we understand uh, a word of it? Oh, but because you, you got to understand the characters of the archers. But no, after saying that, there's, oh, it's, 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 it's some, I'm, I'm being somewhat facetious. One of the lovely things is about Dum De Dum is that many people actually listen to it that don't actually even listen to the archers because they quite like the kind of the comedy and the humour that myself and my co-host Lucy kind of throw at it. And it's just like two friends talking in the pub in the bar it's that type of thing so we'll do, we'll go off and and we will ramble as i have done on your on your <laughs> show here about politics about history about why dinner is called dinner we'll just talk about anything and just kind of weave it mm. back into talking about uh, the arches which we love so um yeah so um royfield.com if you just want to find out uh, some of the things that i do and um and yeah and uh, on social media i'm at royfield specifically on twitter and on facebook just just royfield spelled r-o-i-f-i-e-l-d so r-o-i for india f-i-e-l-d it's and it's so cool that you have such a unique name because you just dominate the royfield space there's just <laughs> you can get royfield.com which like you know four people on earth can say ah yes i just have the show that is my first name so i i'm a little jealous that's pretty neat well, uh, my, my father was somewhat forward-thinking in, in the late 1960s. <laughs> Before domain names were even thought up of, he thought, right, let's give my son a, a unique name. But after saying that, though, uh, jokes completely completely to one side. Um, this year saw the passing of Muhammad Ali, who was a great uh, icon for me growing up. And mm. it was one of the f first times kind of growing up being 
black and being British, being English. And I was, I was actually really connected to America, to this uh, American icon who maybe in the mid 70s wasn't quite an American icon then. He was a black icon. And then subsequently, uh, white America kind of embraced him afterwards because he was still uh, upset with him about his stance on Vietnam. Um, but my reason for bringing that up is the fact that one of the reasons why Muhammad Ali is so influential and pivotal if you are black and you are American, Canadian or British is because though he wasn't the first but he was by far the the biggest example of somebody rejecting conventional uh, Judeo-Christian forenames. So yes he was uh, uh, Cassius Clay but as part of him saying, I am uh, a black man and I'm proud of it, and he became a Muslim, he became Muhammad Ali. Subsequent to that, you look at the change in the names of, of African Americans. So previous to the 1960s, up until about the mid-1960s, Afri- African Americans were John, William, all, the, all your standard Anglo, uh, you know, Christian names, forenames, shall we say. And then in the rise of black consciousness of which Muhammad Ali was was just a part of it, then you have creative, uh, conflated, made-up names of which mine is one. So in a very, very tangential way, uh, there is my link back to uh, kind of American culture, black consciousness. And that's what my father definitely played into when he, when he created my name in the late 1960s. It was a time when black people throughout the world and definitely in the western world wanted to strive and create a a, a unique uh, identity for themselves and kind of rejected anglo forenames so there you go roy field that's awesome cool what a neat story (laughs) you know what i'd never even thought about it until muhammad ali died and i and i read all these things about what he meant to the world um, when he was, you know, at his pump, uh, what he meant to uh, to black people, to Americans, to Muslims, etc., etc., and nowhere, nowhere, nowhere did I actually see that. And um, it's something which really I should actually commit that to uh, to print somewhere. I should whack an article up somewhere and just say, look, yeah, there's this it. other thing which people completely forgotten because it, you know. It, this 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 change this sea change would have happened but he's absolutely the first he's absolutely the first you know and it isn't to do with religion though he changed his name for religious purposes but as i say it's absolutely marked you know you look at all of your african-american leaders uh, or even martin luther king who were born before the mid-60s and they have you know, Anglo forenames, and then yeah. afterwards, there's this big change, and 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 he is absolutely the standard bearer of that. He's that marker which you can say, right, Muhammad Ali becoming Muhammad Ali, 1964, the rise of black power consciousness, and then bang, you know, you have your, you know, um, Dejans, and you have your uh, Draymond Green. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this, you know, this is big change, big change. And, you know, he deserves his uh, role in that as well. Cool. Cool. 